welcome to episode 39 of the UC Architects, the world's most popular exchange, link and Office 365 podcast. Recorded on Sunday the 8th of June 2014, I'm your host Steve Goodman, Exchange MVP. On today's show we'll be talking as ever about what's hot in the Microsoft UC world and bringing you this week's latest news. But before we do, this UC Architects episode is sponsored by Instant Technologies, experts in e-discovery and compliance for your Link IM archive. View a two-minute demo or start a free trial today at www.tryhrauditor.com and follow them on Twitter at Team Instant. We're also sponsored by Event Zero. The Dossier Link product family is an integrated suite of functionality designed specifically to enable organization-wide analytics for Microsoft Link environments. Create actionable intelligence for the organization about the Link environment and its utilization. Check them out today at eventzero.com. But without further ado, let's get started. This week, I'm joined by Dave Stork, Johan Valdas, Jean Cook, Michelle Deroy, and... Tom Arbuthnot. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Hi. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, so, today's top stories are really around Exchange. So, since the last episode, we've had Exchange 2013 Cumulative Update 5 released, which is the one that came after Service Pack 1. And so far, so good. It's been quite a good Service Pack. Uh, anything good to report? Anything bad to report, guys? It's actually kind of a little bit boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should act like we're surprised if they release one without any problems. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that... It's the not thing that bad. That, that I think good testing um, has obviously paid off. They've been promising this for a while, and it's been a week since it's been released. And, yeah, no... Actually, what was it, the 27th? So um, almost two weeks since it's been released. And, yeah, no problems. That's really, really good. And and not that unusual. Service Pack 1 was quite a good service pack as well. Uh, Well, Except for that little tiny transport bug. Though, to be honest, if they found that before they released it, and then on the release notes page said you need to do this, it would have probably been equal to, to this cumulative update. Because there are a few tweaks you need to do. For example, the event uh, firing, the, the managed availability probe that keeps on firing for a service that doesn't exist. Right, yeah. Uh, which isn't really an issue because it's there in the release notes. You know, they knew about it before they released. Uh, so, so, yeah, not, not, a, not a bad one and no, no, no major issues to report. And the other side to that is uh, the 2010 Service Pack 3 uh, update rollup 6. Which is equally dull. I find that uh, refreshing for, for for once. So yeah, true. Uh, yeah, we, we've agree. earned it, I think. I, I think so. Yeah. So so Johan, as uh, as is this your first or second podcast since you've been a Microsoft employee? You've been on a couple, haven't you? <laughs> I think it was my yeah my second one. I attended the last one. So, so you must be over the moon. You've released a product that's not broken. <laughs> Why? No, no, I'll be nice. <laughs> ah, be nice. No, no, but it's, no, it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, releasing this kind of software is pretty hard, uh, I'd imagine, given that I don't write much code. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good achievement because it is really important. It's more important than ever that these service packs or cumulative updates uh really good quality because customers need to keep them up to date if they've got hybrid environments yeah it is and especially when in the past we had some well 
service packs and CUs and rollups, which, well, which could be better because there were there were some issues with it. It's pretty important that the uh, well that the quality remains high because the customer will needs to be or needs to have confidence to implement the DCU as we change the uh, supportability also for 2030. Looking at the supportability, it's pretty much changed compared to 2010. So customers will need to stay up to date. So yeah, I agree with you. It's pretty important that important that the quality is okay uh, yeah. from our perspective, but also for the customer's perspective. Well, I suppose um, as a, a PFE directly affects you if there's major issues with an exchange patch because you're going to be one of the people that is sorting out for some of Microsoft's biggest customers uh, on the continent in the in Holland. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm officially I'm working for Western Europe, so yeah, I'm, I'm not the only uh, locate. Well, helping customers in uh, in Holland or in the Netherlands. So it's a, uh, it's quite yeah. a, a big area to cover then. If there's, if this it, is a budget. it is, yeah. So if if there's a major issue uh, introduced by a CU or a rollup, yeah, it could potentially uh, cause some additional uh, cases and maybe some requirements to go on site. But yeah, that's why we also re- always recommend to first test it in a test lab and ensure that it works in your environment before starting the deployment in production environment. I know, I know that, that not all customers may have a tester environment, but yeah, it's it's really something which I strongly encourage you to do. And I know we always say test in test environment. And I think we, we discussed it during the UC Architects episode several times. Yeah. It's telling that um, it's telling that that becomes more important to you. I suppose the more you know, the more important these things become to you. And the more you know, the more you recommend running in a test environment first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I wouldn't just take that uh, that comment from Johan with a pinch of salt. It's 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 something that we all try to do and often can't. But it's especially with cumulative updates. If you are running a smaller environment and you're patching and it's not like the old roll-up updates, you know, it is service pack level. Uh, it, it could break and it's harder to roll back. So you do need to run it in a, a test environment first. Uh, but it's it does seem like a, a distant memory since the days of uh, Microsoft uh, revoking uh, update roll-up and... Uh, a few days after it's been released, so that you know that that's a distant memory. Uh, now we're we're talking about updates for Exchange 2010 that uh, fix stuff, don't break stuff, and aren't anything to write home about. And the same with 2013, so excellent stuff. Uh, especially if you are you know a customer that needs to keep things really up to date, uh, because if you're hybrid, you've got to keep up on the latest patches, and even if you're not, you've, you've only got a certain amount of time before you can apply those patches. There are some other improvements in uh, Kilometre Update 5 of note, and uh, this is where uh, Michael Van Hybrid should have been on the podcast. Where is he? Well, but again, we're like on the three-hour mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll summarise uh, the, the thing that he's we'll link to from his blog. Um, but the OAuth config uh, that you've been able to do for well since Service Pack One, uh, that was originally a manual process, but recommended for every environment that you're going to implement hybrid into so if you're updating to service pack one of 2013 then one of the recommended tasks would be to enable oauth instead of federated sharing so a different way of seeing free busy calendar sharing now one of the improvements is that uh, that now uh, the oauth will be done automatically as part of the 
uh, hybrid configuration wizard. So when you go through the hybrid configuration wizard, you go through it as normal, and at the end it'll give you a link. It'll download uh, almost like a Microsoft Fix-It type thing. It'll download a little exe which makes the config changes for you to enable OAuth. Uh, that makes things really easy. Uh, it still, however, does want you to configure federated sharing as part of the setup, which I suppose you can't have everything yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, a great improvement and certainly makes it much much easier to deploy uh, something fiddling it puts it all into the wizard where it should be the funny note is that the uh, exchange deployment uh, wizard the, the online tool to uh, the deployment assistant yeah uh, already has this uh, incorporated in the uh, in the steps so uh, it says uh, well and, and now you get a notification to configure OAuth or something like that and I, I was still on search back one when I tried to make a hybrid and I was like I don't see that screen but it's uh, the documentation uh, is already uh, updated uh, f- for that uh, the deployment uh, assistant oh, fantastic um, but th- that's the thing you know if you are configuring hybrid today uh, with a 2013 server then you should be using 2013 cumulative update 5 you shouldn't be using service power 1 you should be up to date and well betide you if you were using anything older than service power 1 uh, it terrifies me the thought that there might be some people who uh, are still trying older versions uh, but oh, yes well, so, in, in my case CU5 wasn't released yet so. well yeah I wasn't, I wasn't or, or just specifically just, but well, uh, the, the, three the days idea that before someone that. might download RTM and try it with that all oh, right you know it's the kind of thing that could happen and just to call out you know keep it yeah. it's not just uh it's n- a nice to have you do need to be running the latest cumulative update and, and if and somebody has done this for you six months ago you need to be keeping it up to date as well uh, to keep concurrency so you need to be patching that hybrid server and after patching the hybrid server one of your tasks try it out in your lab first it would be to enable OAuth and make sure that when you rerun the hybrid config wizard which you should be able to rerun after each set of patches or any time you want would be to do that OAuth configuration because that means as Microsoft bring in new features then you'll get them so you might as well be configured properly to start with and uh, for those that uh, still have to implement a new Exchange 2013 server just pick up the latest CU Uh, it's uh, just a full install and it's, it's something that a lot of people still don't know that uh, just the, the latest cumulative update or service pack uh, can be used as a, a full install. Uh, that's not the case for um, our use from Exchange 2010, but it is for the cumulative updates and service packs for 2013. Just yeah. uh, just a little uh, helpful uh, tip. Uh, it's for, it's not just a tip. It's if you're not doing it that way, then change what you're doing now. So <laughs> you're doing yeah. it wrong. You were doing it wrong. So so I. <laughs> It's it isn't uncommon that people will say, well, right, I'll I'll download Exchange, I'll get it from the Volume License Service Center, and they'll download the ISO because they think that is the licensed version, and that's the only version they can install from. It is not the case. So if you're installing Exchange 2007, download Service Pack 3, and then install the updates. If you're installing an, a fresh Exchange 2010. You can't, there is not a supported version of Service Pack 2 or Service Pack 1 or RTM. The only supported version, just like Exchange 2003 is not supported, the only supported version of 2010 is Service Pack 3. Download Service Pack 3 and install from that and then install uh, Update Rollup 6. And again, yeah, as you say, the, uh, 
the 2013 updates are like service packs. So, Cumulative Update 5, install from that. Download that and update. Don't, don't download Service Pack 1 and then install Cumulative Update 5. Install Cumulative Update 5 now. That's the one to install. And my, and my favorite part of the process is always uninstalling Exchange. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> you do it what now? That's <laughs> the first time like, okay, well, um, that's going to be, I hope it comes back. <laughs> Uh, but yes, yeah, so the, the, the product licensing comes in separately. So when you license it, that's where you'll use the code out of the Volume License Service Center or the hybrid code. It's not linked to the version that you download. There's not a trial version of Exchange that you install or a service pack but won't install afresh. The service packs are all slipstreamed. The cumulative updates are all slipstreamed. Um, not that I'm trying to drill that in or anything, but uh, you keep on seeing it again and again and again. And it's been this way since 2007. Yeah, and don't forget the with CU5, it's a scheme update. So plan plan ahead. And it, yeah. I think I, I heard to assume that all CUs would have scheme updates at this point, from this point going farther. Exactly. So. Treat them like a service pack. Uh, a very regular service pack and as someone that has been on uh, a tap program once you get used to it it's absolutely fine uh, it's it's only when the, the only scary thing about doing service packs is not doing service packs because you get so far behind it's like getting into debt and ignoring the bills then you're scared of opening that envelope but if you are doing service packs regularly so and anyone that's been on a tap will probably be regular to do uh, used to doing lots and lots of service pack installs and yeah it's you know thousands done one or two have broken a server uh, as long as you do it the right way and and make sure that you read the release notes before you start and understand what you're doing it should be absolutely fine you know and yeah as johan says do it in the lab and and while you're watching the the .NET assemblies step you can probably go and go to the grocery store and come back and cook dinner <laughs> Eat it. Wrap <laughs> over leftovers before it's completed. So, yeah. I mean, the only thing, <laughs> the, the only thing I would say, don't do, is, and I watched someone do this and went, <gasps> okay, <laughs> and is run the service pack on two, like two passive nodes or something like that at once, um, because if two, if if two break, then you've lost two servers. Uh, and that's exactly what happened in that circumstance. Uh, there was something wrong on both servers and. They, they both needed um, taking out the DAG and a dis disaster recovery install uh, before getting up to date uh, on the the database copies that they were running. And that was a pain in the bum. But, um, you know, it would have just been one server. So, you know, do one at a time in each DAG or, you know, whatever you can afford to, to rebuild to at once if you have to plan for the worst. Um, but um, it's really unusual that it breaks anything. Yeah, I haven't had any major in, in a long time with uh, other than you know known issues that we talked about earlier, but uh, with, when when new releases come out. And I'm just seeing Johan's writing. Always read the release notes. It's very very true. And especially yes, yeah, so also understand the new. There's a, the, the big thing is the OAB new, new uh, OAB sort of. Yep, new, uh, new OAB improvements in 2013. Do you want to describe that? I, I just want to kind of bring, bring it out. There's, there's a whole there's yeah. a whole actual uh, Ross just, just published Ross just published a new. Uh, New post on it not that long ago, kind of really drilling into the 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 new stuff. But just be in mind that it does there's some functionality change in terms of so, how it works. So that the sort of very very simple overview is if you've got a multi-region exchange 2013, then your OAB instead of being generated by one server, it can now be generated in different regions or downloaded in different regions, uh, thus uh, not breaking your WAN with a massive OAB. 
Okay. Dig it. All right. So moving on, uh, we're going to try and make this episode reasonably short today uh, because I'm aware that uh, the ones that I'm hosting can sometimes be one hour fifty, and uh, unless you have a very long drive to work, <laughs> then perhaps it does drag on a little bit. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and uh, go reasonably quickly through the topics today, um, if I can. Uh, how long did I take on that topic? Um, half an hour. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Uh, so. The second discussion is uh, exchange storage. So I'm forever hearing different people saying exchange should be virtualized, exchange should still go on sand storage. Uh, I hear that all the time. And <laughs> we, we want NFS. Well, I, d- <laughs> I don't hear that much. But I yeah, I don't actually hear that much. It. I hear from vendors going, <laughs> we want to be able to sell you NFS for exchange because we know you really want it. Uh, so so I, the the reason that I brought this about is uh, I've recently written a blog post on www.stevg.org uh, about why it is time to dump expensive RAID storage, not just dumping a SAN for exchange, but uh, why you should really start to trust auto-reseed as well. So Now that's asking a lot. <laughs> Well, is it? No, the, no. The process is awesome. The the, the 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 process is awesome. Putting it, setting it up, I think, is it's a challenge for a lot of people. There's a lot of pieces, but uh, buy it. I agree. Buy it's a, very useful. Buy a sand from EMC. See if they'll let you set it up yourself. If it's, <laughs> yeah, true, if it's right. more expensive, they'll they'll bring a whole team of people to install it for you. So, hmm? or a reseed. I think it's easier than wiring up a VNX or something. And trying to configure multi-site replication for a big sand like that, or you know, three par. Can you just put that in yourself with a couple of PowerShell scripts to configure all the resilience? You make it sound so easy. <laughs> no, I'm aware it's it, it's not simple, and it's a bit of a leap. So auto reseed is basically using the built-in functionality of Exchange to provide local RAID, and then using your multitude of servers to provide the the failover as well. So you have a number of databases on a disk, and if that disk fails, the database fails over to another node. Auto-reseed picks your online spare disk and then reseeds those databases from multiple sources much, much quickly, much more, much more quickly than you'll get from reseeding a single database, potentially more quickly than, than uh, your RAID 10 rebuilding. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's quite a good technology. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. And, 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 and when you think of it, you know, the, the, the sort of why why it exists, you know, if you think of it as also, you know, you have all multi. You know, we talked about this before, multi-node, multi-role servers. You know, so you have these bricks, um, and they're all the same, and they all have the same roles. And so now, you know, with auto reseed, I mean, it, it's just a whole concept. Like, you know, these servers are going to be locked in, a, in, whether they're in your cloud or Microsoft's cloud, they're going to be locked in a Connex box or some you know pile of computers somewhere. And this is one more thing that you just nobody has to go into the data center and swap a disk out, right? Yeah, it, it, it's really about restoring uh, the, the the high availability again to its uh, to your normal state automatically, and uh, for, for some environments it could be uh, a very good addition. Uh, I have unfortunately never uh, been able to implement it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I've only done it in the lab to, for the testing. And yeah. Well, a lot of environments that I I work for, um, well, the DAG, uh, the database availability group, that's that's a no-brainer in in most cases uh, today. Um, but uh, if if I start talking about the preferred architecture 
or um, or, or especially something like auto reseed, then then it's like nah, that's not necessary. Our, our users can can go without mail for several hours or something like that. So. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I think the customers, from talking to customers, so as a consultant, I talk to customers, and I think their aptitude for wanting that the, the amount they want to do this is proportionate to how much they know about exchange. True. <coughs> so if, yeah. they, if they don't know a lot about what the about exchange storage, they haven't kept up to date on the latest updates in terms of you know what's happening in the exchange world they don't understand the architecture but understand the basics of dag then they're, they're then they're not going to be very interested in this and they'll perhaps if they're quite generalist then they'll be more keen to just use the existing sand solution that they've got but if right yeah and that sometimes can apply to large organizations where it's where they have an exchange sme but their exchange sme perhaps is only doing 2007 at the moment and hasn't taken the time to update skills in advance of the migration and is yeah. perhaps looking to looking at what's been there and thinking about how they do that again. Yeah, yeah got- I, I, I see a lot of uh, companies that uh, still think that Exchange 2013 works like uh, Exchange 2003 or 2007 and, and there are a lot of big changes that makes it ridiculous sometimes uh, when, when I uh, have a discussion with, with customers then we get a then, and then it takes a while before I, I, I detect that they have uh, legacy knowledge and then I have to <laughs> <laughs> have to refocus on that and re-educate them about no especially about storage it's, it's always something that that, that um, is for instance the the, the reduced IOPS um, of Exchange 2010 or 2013 uh, compared to Exchange 2003, they still have a lot of customers still have the notion of Exchange is a is an IOPS uh, monster. Uh, well, which is a, a whole lot different <laughs> today. So yeah, uh, I've I've had had a lot of discussion, especially with archiving and the in place archiving. Yeah, day. that's that's I think that that's the point where. If you're talking to someone and they say, "Well, we want to use slower storage for the online archives," exactly, yeah, that they, they, they perhaps haven't went through a sizing exercise or perhaps learn a little bit about the IOPS reductions. Yeah, and I know it sounds a little bit, a bit like you know a salesman for exchange here, but there have, have been massive, massive improvements. But the, yeah, conversely, when you speak to someone where perhaps uh, an example might be where they've got a contractor in who's an exchange SME that's going to lead the project from the customer side, then and they really know their stuff, then they are talk. The, the more they know, the more likely they are to want to do auto reseed physical exchange servers and understand the, the, the how exchange should best be architected. The 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 only ones that seem to sit in the middle are the ones that say we want to virtualize everything, whatever the cost, because we've decided that it will be operationally cheaper to run everything off our a million pound a piece V blocks or whatever. Yeah. And, that, and that's difficult because you don't know what their operational costs are and don't necessarily have the figures to be able to prove them otherwise. For example, they might say, well, it will take up more rack space. Uh, you know, you've you've probably got quite a lot of rack space then if you're buying whole rack monsters, mate. Um, so, I don't know. I I always worry when people want to just waste money. 
and don't want to build some build a good solution so so yeah i'm I'm definitely one for exchange on physical servers if it's going to be a larger infrastructure if it's a very small infrastructure then perhaps virtualization makes more sense so on the flip side of that you know i think there can be good virtual infrastructures uh, that can support exchange very very well so but that is that usually means smaller exchange nodes which don't really fit very well with uh, the requirements for Exchange 2013, but ideally smaller exchange servers, but more of them, so to scale out across a larger virtual infrastructure. Uh, but again, the storage is just much, much more expensive. And although customers say, well, you know, it'll tear itself, we've got auto this, auto that, it's still going to cost a lot, lot more to run. Uh, because they'll need more licenses to be able to run it and balance it effectively so each node isn't taking up a whole virtual host. And it's it, it's just more inefficient, much more licenses, uh, much more much more storage requirements. Can't use all the brilliant stuff that's in the SAN and in the virtual infrastructure, like thin provisioning or NFS storage for that scale-out stuff with um, the, the vendors that will remain nameless. <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know it's possible well, well, to do it but it's very yeah. inefficient it only seems to be efficient when you've got a very small organization and they don't even need a dag or they've got you know a, a, a virtual host or two at each site and they're just going to have a, a two node dag across sites and use whatever backup solution they've already got yeah but it, it's it's a sometimes a very difficult discussion especially the, the virtualization versus uh, physical Deployment of exchange, and 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 in in the Netherlands, I uh, I think that I've only did virtual deployments, and not always to my liking, uh, because yeah, there there is no almost no real benefit of virtualization in in a lot of cases, and you have to turn off uh, things in in virtualization, or, or uh, uh, so that it, you won't benefit of virtualization actually and then you get to the storage part with uh, expensive sands uh, and and I, I think one uh, 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 best thing uh, consultants can do is to uh, try to uh, make a calculation of the cost uh, just um, uh, licenses and and uh, gigabytes uh, euros per gigabytes uh, and compared with a, a, a virtual and a physical deployment, and I think that yeah, I think that can, I think that that could surprise customers. Do you think it's more expensive usually to virtualize? It depends on uh, well, it it depends. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> typical consultant. Exactly. Uh, well, it, it depends on the cost per gigabyte on a SAN solution. Um, and it depends on uh, how much uh, nodes they have, uh, uh, hypervisor hosts, um, and stuff like that. So, um, uh, but that's um, when you look at it from an exchange pers perspective. Uh, virtualization doesn't have that much <laughs> benefit, uh, as you said, for very very small environments. Yes, but then again, then you can also consider Office 365. Well, this is where I think on the other side of the coin uh, and you know I'm a, a big proponent of Office 365 Exchange Online uh, but if you have a virtual infrastructure that's you know reasonably new reasonably solid and you don't need the kind of resilience that um, DAG brings and you know a single exchange node is what you've had for the last 10 years and 
you're quite happy to stick with that, then yeah, you know, that can be cheaper than Office 365 just for Exchange because, you know, it's going to run on the existing kit. It's going to consume a license and some cows and it's probably going to, you know, in in tandem with uh, virtualization high high availability, going to be reliable enough, but only for a small organization. But, uh, you know, I I think it's not always cheaper to go to Office 365. It's all the other stuff you get on top. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. You can't build. If you were to talk, you know, talk about that, it, the comparison isn't Exchange Online at two quid a mailbox. Uh, you know, that's that the two pound eighty a mailbox gives you multi-country or in the US multi-state resilience that you couldn't do on that little virtual machine. But it's also the other stuff that you get as well that you want that's worth having. So SharePoint Online, the OneDrive, the the, the terabyte of storage, Link Online. But uh, if it's just Exchange. And that's all you want. Yeah, it's, it can be very cost-effective to use virtualization. The argument that I seem to, to be hearing a lot from some of the, the storage vendors that also claim to be against expensive SANs, where they're looking at the scale-out to virtualized storage, is that um, you know we're getting it wrong. You know these guys also agree with us and want to have cheap storage uh, using the physical storage inside servers and think that SANs are a thing of the past too. And we should be, we we as MVPs, MCMs and so on, should be trying our best to convince Microsoft to support NFS. And we should be getting behind them because we're mad to think that we should uh, deploy Exchange on physical servers in this day and age. And we should instead be behind virtualization and we should be behind cheap storage on virtualization. Thus, we should be behind an NFS-based scale-out sound solution. What do you think? I think you said exactly what we thought you would say very nicely and eloquently <laughs> without making anyone angry <laughs> i don't know you know i deal this worse with link all the time with virtualization because because you know the guidance being of, of the core ratio is being one-to-one with physical to virtual i mean you know it basically rules it out for a lot of organizations especially if they're thin uh, and you know overcommittal is part of their deal um it's just not worth doing on, on, on virtual do you find much resistance with that yeah actually i mean you know it's a it's a it's it's it well again remember from you know from our perspective in my at least in my in my uh, history with hyperv it's not such a big deal because you know the vmware kind of treats the cpu stuff you know differently in the sense overcommittal is part of their part of their their plan right yeah. from day one so when you try to introduce a product like link that completely and, and the link guys come and say hey we need one core for every physical for every virtual in, in each one of these nodes. They're going to say no, <laughs> and then and then you're back. Now you're going to fight the you know, argument about physical hardware, you know, all over again. Yeah. If someone, some, in some organizations, that's a huge deal breaker for either. You know, you know, you know, we're not going to like 2013 for that reason because we got to move to physical servers and it's going to cost us two million dollars. You know, so uh, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from from a virtualization guy. You know, what uh, one decision in my life uh, I might be talking on a VMware podcast for, or you know. Uh, you know, I uh, very much understand that. And from years past, remember seeing the specs come from applications team saying, you know, it's got to have this many spindles, this many CPUs. And they're, they're talking about how it goes on a, a physical platform when we're talking about a virtual platform. And it's completely different. And you think, well, don't they get it? Are they absolutely stupid? You know, it's not. Uh, what? Why does it need? <laughs> What, what does it need an 80 gig? And this is probably Windows 2003. What does it need an 80 gig or 79 gig is the specification for the OS spindles? Why does it need to be on RAID 1 for the OS? That's because they're, they're trying to design some physical servers for us. And 
perhaps if I was the virtualization guy that's getting link or exchange specs, I'd be thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. And back then, when you were when virtualization was new and and vendors didn't understand it, yeah, that was true. They didn't really know what they were talking about. They're putting some low CPU, perfect for virtualization application, but they're just giving random specs because they're trying to suggest what disks we should buy for the server. But that's not the case anymore, and that's perhaps what uh, virtualization guys need to understand. Everything can be virtualized, but that doesn't mean everything should. That's right. Yeah. Good way to put it. So, yeah, so, but I, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe I'll change my mind. If I, I I await the day that I'm convinced that um, this NFS-based storage is amazing, and you know if 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 I'm convinced that it's better one day, then yeah, I'll probably be just as much a proponent proponent as uh, the pre-sales guys that uh, work for the company uh, that I'm thinking of. That... Well, well, the the, the products the products uh, from what I understand. Uh... Are, are quite uh, impressive and and, and and it's it's a very interesting concept, but just not in combination with exchange at the moment. <laughs> um, so, is there anything else we need to add to that then? Um, so before we move on, I think we beat this like a dead horse. <laughs> oh yes, there was one last thing. There was one last thing. We're going to link to this, and this is, this isn't a in your face kind of thing. Or maybe it is. Uh, the, we're linking to a KB article <laughs> on the VMware site uh, where they have a bug in their NFS stack where data gets lost, basically. Uh, that might not be exactly true. That's as I understand it. Let me just qualify that before I say it. So it, uh, if, does, did it say data gets lost? I did read this. Let's have a look. Let's qualify that before before I get accused of... Uh, I'll read the text off the site. So uh, for, the, uh, for the, the VMware people... Uh, I don't know whether data will get lost, but it loses connectivity to NFS storage and uh, things go badly wrong on the VMware host um, at the at the time. When running ESX 5.5 update 1, the ESX I host intermittently loses connectivity to NFS storage and an all-paths-down condition to NFS volumes is observed. Lucky you're not running Exchange on that, eh? Right, moving on. <laughs> Before I go down that rabbit hole, uh, we've done that to death, I think. Uh, so, some some brief news about Exchange then now. So, uh, the Exchange Server 2013 Platform Options poster is now available for download. We'll have the link to that. And if you like open specifications, then the posters for the Office Client, Link, SharePoint, MS Exchange, SQL Server, and others are available now too. And you'll find the links to those on our website. And our last, it's sort of also a bit Office 365-y for, for us as well. Data loss prevention uh, from Exchange is coming to OneDrive for Business and SharePoint. I think this is massive news. And it's going to be very, very good. So if you're a big fan of DLP uh, in Exchange and understand how it works, how you can prevent uh, you know, an email in transit uh, from containing credit card numbers and so on, uh, you can upload templates and fingerprint documents, stop everything based on a certain template from leaving your organization. That, fun- that functionality, that team that provide that functionality to- for Exchange uh, have moved out of that team and now also cover the SharePoint team as well. So the SharePoint product will have that, as I understand it, they're going to have that functionality uh, against data that's in place. So data at rest will also be covered uh, from a DLP's perspective. Uh, the reason that, that that seems to be important to, to customers I speak to is because one of the the, the worries about using the one terabyte of storage that they get with OneDrive 
is the kind of data that they might pull up there. And then they might have a client on their personal device, their iPhone, be able to download that data, and it might be data that shouldn't be leaving the organization. And being able to restrict what data can get in there in the first place is very important. So, so that that's I think that's fantastic news. Uh, anyone else have any thoughts on that? No, that was <laughs> no, oh, no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't even want to answer. Just type. Well, no. I, I've got I've got one thought about that. Go on. Um, and. And it, See, somebody cares. <laughs> How can you not care about it? <laughs> well, it's not specifically on DLP, but it's. Yeah. Um, is this also for coming for on-prem deployments? Because, um, uh, <clears throat> for instance, uh, the mailbox clutter uh, feature that will be uh, coming uh, in, 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 well, <laughs> after the summer uh, and in Office, 60, Office 365, um, although there was some confusion, uh, they now state very clearly that that will not be on this version on, uh, of Exchange uh, on-prem. So... Um, will this this feature uh, be implemented uh, also or available for on-prem solutions? And if so, yes, then okay, yay. Um, but if not, then we have another feature that will be implemented in the cloud and not for on-prem. I, I don't see why it wouldn't be. I mean, if it's if it's and this is my opinion with Clutter. I mean, if they say Clutter isn't coming to on-prem, what they don't think it's good enough. No, that, that that was. No, a, I, I know uh, what they said, but if yeah. it was if it was worth doing, it'd be worth doing for on-prem as well. Right. It's not yeah. just worth doing for the cloud. It's uh, it, did they think? Do they think? Well, we'll try it out uh, in online. If no one uses it, we'll quietly drop it. I don't think this is a feature that they'll quietly drop. Clutter, no, obviously has potential to be really good, but also has potential to be, meh, you know. Uh, a bit, you know, it might not be as good as it looks in a demo, but DLP will, is something people actually want. No one says, I'd like to be able to hide some more junk, and but people say, I would like to stop really important documents from leaving the organization, that get, and that's what's stopping me from using OneDrive. So I think this will come to on-prem. And on this, I, I don't have a soapbox. I'm sort of repeating. I ask, you know, I ask customers that I speak to about these topics as well to see what to see what their opinions are. And uh, I, I talked to um, one of uh, my customers, Graham. Hello. <laughs> uh, I spoke to him the other day, and I, I said, you know, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, you've got other services that are add-on. So, for example, um, Office Web App Server, you have to deploy as a separate server. You have to book that alongside. You have to keep that up to date. Uh, We've also got other solutions that we buy from MDM solutions. We have to update those very, very regularly, much more regularly than Exchange. So, yeah, we'd have that. We'd update a server. We'd have an additional server just to get that feature if we thought it was good enough. So so I, I think the arguments about installing a CPU-heavy additional server or servers to support things like Clutter um, you know, don't really weigh up when you speak to customers. So, I, yeah, I hope this does come. You know, if it's it did a, not fork the product. Say it again. They did not fork the product. <laughs> Say it with me. <laughs> they, did, they didn't fork the product up. <laughs> well, no, that, that was I the kid, whole I point, kid. though. It's supposed to be a common code base. You know, they made a big thing of that. That in 2010, they forked the product. And now they brought everything back together. So, you know, what, what's the score? You know, I, I, I think no, no, if I it's good it, enough for the cloud... 
if it's good the, enough for the that, cloud, you know, it's, it's, it's good enough for on-prem. And the but, other thing we forget, and this is really important to hosters and for a competitive market, is that all these features need to be in the hands of hosters. They need to be able to also deploy Clutter to their service. Otherwise, it sounds a little bit anti-competitive. I'm not even going to ask Johan to talk about it at all because that's not, not fair on him. But I, I don't think it's particularly competitive to restrict hosters from being able to use uh, cloud or it's not cloud only it's microsoft cloud only features because hosters are also providing cloud services to to other organizations you know if the the china deployment of office 365 gets clutter then every other hoster should also be able to get clutter too just my opinion i agree i was just i was just curious so (laughs) Uh, uh, but yeah so I, I, I feel like I, you know, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox about this. I, that, that's, I, that's just my opinion. If I'm wrong, then please tell me because I'm willing to change my opinion if I'm wrong. You know, so uh, if you're listening to the show and you definitely disagree with me and you think some stuff should be cloud only and that is absolutely fine, sod the hosters. We don't need those anymore. Then say so. You know, let us know via Twitter. Let us know however you want because. I'm interested in hearing other people's opinions on this. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not the the Steve show. It's it's not it's the UC architect, and we're all about listening to what other people have got to say and trying to take that on board. So you know, I, I might sound a bit soapboxy sometimes, and I don't mean to. That's the mojitos talking anyway. Uh, moving on, moving on. Uh, this sounds quite interesting. I've not looked at this. Uh, the My Bulletins online tool provides a personalized list of Microsoft security bulletins that matter to you. Anyone use that yet? Mybulletins.technet.microsoft.com I don't manage an infrastructure anymore, so I don't need to worry quite so much about these kind of things, but that that sounds quite interesting. Um, What would be really good is if um, it integrated with something like WSUS and pulling all the the things that you subscribe to uh, and then puts into that tool. Uh, So yeah, there's been a few interesting... uh, tools from microsoft like that uh what was the what was the other one that they brought out recently and uh to uh to to collate uh links and stuff like that together i think tony redmond did one of them as well have you have you do you know the tool i'm on about no big name <laughs> no. no okay the, the, there's a tool somewhere I'll, I'll dig it out a bit later isn't it? um but it's a it's a cu- curation sort of tool cura or something like that yeah you know what i see them they're I have no idea what that is, and I feel like a, douche, a doofus from asking, but what are they talking about? What is this Kurah, whatever it is? Kurah, Kurah. Here we I go. Know, I have no, I have no idea. Q, Q, found it. There's one. Exchange Kurah. Curate the web and share what you know. And uh, here's one from Prabhak Nigam. Uh, I'm a public speaker for Exchange for Tech Stravaganza. Oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, what else has he got? There was one that Tony Redmond did, and uh, and I don't know yeah, why, but he keeps calling that. I see that hashtag, and I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I probably should, but I don't. <laughs> see, I can admit it. The cousin, I'm thinking. But Tony Redmond did one, and uh, I was over the moon that he linked to me, and then he brought Steve is known to his friends as Peter <laughs> Steve, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know why he keeps calling me this. But he does. Oh, while I'm at it, I'm doing a... You can pretty much call you everything you want. I mean, you, you yeah, want I, I don't know if you're going to test with PSTs. Uh, while, while I'm at it, though, I'm doing um, a webinar uh, 
this uh, coming the, the 12th of June uh, with C2C and MSExchange.org about PSTs. But no, I don't know why he thinks I'm obsessed with PSTs, apart from writing articles about them and going, doing webinars about them. Uh, but apart from that, I'm, I'm PST-free. Uh, that sounds dodgy, doesn't it? But PST, <laughs> it sounds like piss, Steve. Uh, which, um, you know, okay, I am drinking a mojito. <laughs> But just the one. Just the one. Very, very strong one. And it is a weekend. So that's okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, QR. I'm not, um, you can search for that. It comes up fairly quickly. It's remembering what it's called. Uh, C-U-R-A-H dot Microsoft dot com. And it, it seems almost like a, a tech... <coughs> it's like a tech Tumblr type thing. That's the best way of calling it, isn't it? Um, you can... Uh, or, uh, like a tech Pinterest... I'm not selling it to myself, so I don't know if you like it. Um, it doesn't sound that interesting to me anyway. But it look, the idea, it, it seems quite good. It's like a list of blocks and stuff like that on each person's page. Link room system updates. Well, onto the link stuff now, guys. So wake Ooh. up, Tom, if you're still there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's been very quiet thus far. Well, have we finished arguing about exchange and virtualization now? Though? <laughs> well, I yeah. If yeah. one more time, I'm going to blow my brains out. <laughs> Oh, dear. well, you know, I'm, I'm qualified to do so. I'm a VCP 5, 4, 3, and all that. I'm qualified to slag it off. <laughs> um, maybe not, maybe not. That that never goes down well whenever I say it to people, to VMware people. So I'm not going to, I'm only joking. <laughs> yeah, so Link, um, here we are. Uh, Link Room Systems, version 15.10 May update is out for smart with fixes and enhancements. Um, did anyone know about that? Is, is there anything good in it? Because the, the last update was um, that, that I was aware of was a daylight savings time update or something like that. Is this a feature one? Uh, I haven't deployed it yet, but I think there's quite a lot in this one. I don't think it's just for smart either. I think it's for all the vendors. Yeah, I think it's for all, all uh, it's across the platform. Oh, cool. So uh, there's lots in it. Is so is the requirement to keep these up to date um, almost immediately, or is it based on whether it offers something that you like? Well, well Steve, you should test it in your lab, because obviously you're going to have an LRS in your lab, aren't you? So <laughs> <I want laughs> test, test it extensively. <laughs> well, I, you know, actually, you should you should see, you know, I, I've got my own link room system. Um, I'm, I've had to move offices into the bedroom, and I've got like a link room system size screen here, which is what I'm reading off. Um, so, so, yeah, I... So you can't put it in the lab, but uh, of, of the link room systems that you deployed, do, do, how many do each customer have? Do they have two, three? Um, do they have enough to patch one and uh, have one that's uh, not broken at the other end? Yeah, I mean, I think you can patch one to start, and you know, it's, it's they're kind of like client updates, so they shouldn't be super yeah. risky. So uh, the, there's a decent list of what's been updated, so it's just a, a patch and test type job. Cool. So is there any uh, any non anything that don't really apply to normal client updates? So uh, what's the recommended way to patch them? Because uh, I, I guess things are, are most not domain joined or. Some are domain uh, join. What's yeah, you, you domain join them as part of the setup, so they're typically yeah. domain join, so they can be kind of um, WSUS basically, or you can do some <coughs> manual patching or online patching. Oh, fantastic! So fairly straightforward then. Yeah, I think so. Nothing to. Uh, to yeah, no. I mean, we we have the links up there if you look at the you know the announcements. Um, just some some bug fixes, a couple small functionality changes. Looks like to me, but uh, I don't see anything hairy about updating them. Nothing. 
Cool. And um, we, I think <clears> we, uh, we've been talking about this uh, for a while. I don't know whether this uh, got a mention on the, the last episode of the podcast hosted by Pat, um, but uh, Graham Copley, who runs uh, Link exgh.co.uk as uh, a Midlands based uh, link guy uh, to written a link callback reminder and he's uh, made some updates for it uh, so anyone had a, a look at the link callback reminder because yeah it's not it's really really cool um, um, you know it's like one of the handy things like you, you, you can look at the link and, and download it and try it yourself but basically it adds a you know contextual menu to somebody's contact to say hey you know Leave a, make a callback reminder for this person. Like, you know, it happens to me quite a bit. I get a call, I'm on another call, I get a call, whatever. You know, and I saw your, oh man, I saw you call and I totally forgotten. And, you know, this could help you not do that. <laughs> and hopefully not make me linger. Why don't you call me back? I, I forgot. <laughs> Yeah, so the, there's been quite a few things uh, recently from Graham, and uh, this looks like another one, so check it out today. Uh, we'll have the link to that on the, the blog. Uh, Zen Desktop has been certified uh, on Link 2013. Uh, is this big news? Yeah, this is, yes. this is pretty big news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, I am the, the link expert of the group, <laughs> but maybe not. As I say to people, I, I learn more about link from these episodes than anywhere else. Uh, so, t- uh, But I, I, I know why it's important, but um, I thought that um, Citrix and Link were already working well together. Um, from a so, sort this, of... so this is specifically well, the, the Link VDI plugin, so it's, and it's been kind of working-ish for a while, and we've had it in... in dev test with a few customers but now it's officially got through the certification and supported Um, and obviously they're um, probably the market leader in in VDI so having them on the supported list is a a big help for deployments yeah if you look at the overview too it's uh, 8.1 testing for Windows 8 and 8.1 is in progress right now it's really only for 7 but um, you know you can take a look at the site and and you're looking for it yeah I think this is a big deal um, I see this a lot, you know, the questions around VDI uh, and, and media specifically. You know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, Link works fine in virtual environments, but when it comes to media stuff, it's always been the problem. You can't attach, you know, attach headsets. There's no actual media redirection in the thing. That's the whole, the whole plugin is all about, right? So, but, you know, the more full feature you can make the Link experience on a virtual uh, desktop is a big deal for a lot of companies, so whether I like it or not. You know, I hate the virtual desktop personally, but... But it's big news. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. <laughs> well, you sound over the moon about it, and uh, well, come on, they're, they're no Google. You've got to admit, um, but yeah, ah. Citrix is, is massively common in the Exchange and Office 365 de- deployments that, that I do. So, it's, uh, but uh, but yeah, so very interesting to, to hear that this is supported as well. Uh, so, uh, so, so Tom, of the the deployments that you've done so far of this, uh, is it is is it something that a Citrix environment should, by default, be looking at, or is it a case-by-case basis? Um, it, if you're doing Citrix VDI and you're doing Link, this is the right route to be looking at. Um, there's various things to consider about it. So Citrix have a an approach where they have their own proprietary plugin, and then they have this approach as well. And it really depends on your environment and your thin terminals and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But yeah, if you're if you're using Citrix, this is definitely worth a look. Cool. Uh, so we'll have the link to that up on uh, the blog. Uh, a new update for Link 2013. Uh, update 2880980 for Link 2013 is out. Uh, I don't really know what uh, this contains. Is it a big one, guys? 
it's a client update for for May 2014. So yeah, I mean, basically it's just a bunch of bug fixes. But um, you know, if it's your it's your purity type environment that wants to be as up to date as possible, I would suggest you, you know suggest you test and, and deploy it for your okay. organization's so, <laughs> schedule. So this is the the May update, <clears throat> the, the May 2014 update for Link 2013. Then, right. um, so if they had a proper like CU numbering system, this would be CU something. Oh, I lost track now <laughs> of where this would be now. Um, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure people who don't do Exchange so much uh, might struggle to keep up with these kind of things. On Exchange, but I always struggle to keep up with the numbering for patches or the way that they describe patches for for Link, because it's always seemed... I'd rather a number. Um, but, uh, well, I, I suppose I've got a number, 2880980. Yeah, uh, client so, version will be 15.0.46.15.1001. <laughs> Fantastic. So make a note of that one. You know, I remember it already. See, 2880980. That's quite cool. <laughs> uh, That's so my phone I'll, number. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, so the, there must be a whole bunch of other updates then for Link as well. Uh, if that's the March one for the client, is there a whole bunch of other updates for the server side yet, or are they slipped a bit? I haven't seen anything since April. Right. Yeah. Okay. So right, we, that, we that, should that, see that, some that. more then soon. Fantastic. So this one's this one's a little bit early. All right. Okay. Maybe that's why they they don't use numbering. Yeah. A lot uh, of times they don't uh, release server and client updates in the same time frame. It's not right. uncommon. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean. I'll, I'll, for, from from the exchange side, well, you know, we, we don't even get that kind of luxury uh, with Outlook. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> what am I taking the mick out of, you know? Uh, bigger news uh, for, for, for you guys, uh, Link 2013 is going to support SQL Always On uh, later this year. Yeah, that's a big deal. And, and again, I, I even looked around to kind of back it up. I don't see much in anything official. This is from one of my buddies, Ron He. Um, who was uh, at the at the tech ed, um just last month? Yeah. Um, tweeted it out. Um, so even you know, I think he was in a session um, covering Lincoln, and somebody asked a question or whatever. So that's a big that's a big deal. I you know the sooner the later, because um, it's really problematic right now. I find you know, you know you, on one hand you know especially in large environments where you have dedicated SQL uh, teams, you know they don't want to use it anymore. It's something that they don't use anymore. And they haven't for a long time. They almost kind of laugh at you like you know, like, you know, like you think you're still using that. Like why? <laughs> So, so, so is there any special version requirements like Enterprise Edition for SQL? Um, you know, I don't know much about Always On. That's the thing, and that's why I'm kind of anxious too because uh, we're going to understand how this works. You know, I don't know, Tom, if you ever. I mean, I know people that are they have it deployed with Always On, and there's zero problems. But like on anything else, it's not supported yet. So your mileage is you're on your own in that sense. Yeah, um, that's not. I'm not a SQL guy, but I think it's only in the high-end SKUs of SQLs. So I think yeah, I it's think so. only it's basically in a DAG, in essence, right? It's, a, it's an availability group. Yeah, so normally you deploy Link on standard SQL if you were buying SQL for it. You don't need Enterprise. Um, and a lot of people, I've had a lot of people ask about Always On because it's the new thing, but then they deploy Link on dedicated SQL, and I can't see them buying Enterprise just for Always On, just yeah. for Link. Um, maybe it's that changes. interesting, right? Yeah, because a lot of people yeah. are using use standard now, right? Um, for mirroring, and... Yeah, that's a change. It's going to probably cost a lot more money. <laughs> right. So, so, so imagine, imagine it didn't cost tons more, but it cost a bit more. Uh, what would the what what would be the case where you'd say this is better than what you're doing at the moment? Where is this going to give greater HA? Uh, why should people consider it? Well, I think you know one. I mean, it's I think it's 
important just because operationally it's going to streamline, you know, if, if, if an enterprise SQL team is supporting mirroring and that's the last application for his link, you know, it's a one-off. It's not something, it's not their standard, right? And, you know, we've all yeah. been in a scenario where in big companies getting something that's a change from standard, you know, operational IT stuff is, takes an act of God and a million amount, you know, <laughs> of paperwork. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, some companies will have to go through a, 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 a you know, cab or an advisory board, all that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. So not having to do that would be wicked good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think generally too. I mean, I mean, again, I, I'm not so knowing customer demand, but there's there's not a compelling technical reason for it. Well, I think I think I was just gonna say I think uh, it's not as complex. I mean, all you know, mirroring is not itself complex, but setting it up is kind of. Um, it's gotten better um, in terms of even like patching and stuff. It used to be it used to be some very specific things you had to do when you were in a in a in a in a, in a that kind of setup. But now it's, it's a little bit more you know flexible. Um, but yeah, I think technically wise, I, I would think that it's a little bit less difficult. But again, the same things. It, it would also uh, uh, on a technical level, I think if it's more operationalized for enterprise SQL, it might, it might be something easier that the link team doesn't have to support anymore. Because we all know the kind of the drill right now, right? Um, the link team usually is happy to take on the support of SQL for itself because it's one, you know, maybe you don't trust the enterprise SQL team in a company with your, with your backend database for your major application, right? So um, a lot of companies, you know, the link, SQL for link is always this exception one-off, right? But you know, if it, if it's now easier to put that all on an inter, you know on an integrated pile of, of SQL, um, it makes everyone job better theoretically. Anyway. Cool. Okay. So yeah, Link 2013 was what SQL always on by Q3, Q4. We don't have a link for that at the moment. No. Um, yeah. I said I, I, I was trying to find anything concrete, but I really can't find anything concrete. Uh, th- this sounds like one of those things that ended up halfway through a a tech ed session someone tweeted out um, but it wasn't announced anywhere apart from one slide somewhere uh, is it one of those you reckon yeah pretty much <laughs> uh yeah there, there's a, a similar one uh for the these azure ad sync stuff um where there's a, a complimentary tool that's also coming out and it's in one of the the sessions uh, from TechEd, uh, and it mentions this new tool that's coming out that's going to be a wizard to deploy some Office 365 stuff as well. But there's no links for it anywhere. Uh, you know, it's it's not an official announcement. Right. Um, so maybe it's one of those. So yeah, you you heard it here, um, but uh, it, it's a good reason to go and watch through all the link TechEd videos because you'll eventually come across it um we'll try and do the same but um i don't know whether we'll get that in time for uh putting the show notes online if we do we'll pop up the link to the uh to, to the individual session uh, so you can hear more about it and that's that's all our links topics for today uh, we've not got starley on uh with our link like a pro this week um but i think he'll be on the next show to help you do link like a pro Office 365, we've only got one topic this week about Office 365, and uh, that's... well, I, I talked about it last uh, show I was hosting, uh, but this time it's into beta. The beta release of Azure AD Sync is now available on Connect. It's getting closer, guys. It's coming. Um, so that you can download that now and play with it. It's still not got the switch to enable hybrid yet, um, but all the documentation is now on the TechNet wiki. Azure AD Sync is like Dursync, but it's like a newer version of it, and it can do multi-forest scenarios as well. Uh, for 
example, if you have multiple exchange organizations with trusts and so on, it can do that. If you have resource forests, it can do the stuff that FIM can do. Uh, so if someone's about to sell you a big long project with FIM just because you've got a resource account forest scenario, then in th a few months' time, this is going to come out and suddenly make that whole thing a hell of a lot easier. Uh, so, yep, uh, the links to that uh, are up with the show notes today. Uh, so download and, um, of course, only for lab use at the moment. And we've got a shout-out to just one user group this week, and that is mine, Andrews, and uh, Jason Wynn's UC Birmingham user group. Uh, that's in August, and we've got a few sessions uh, about multi-forest there as well. And you can register today at ucbug.co.uk. I'd like to thank my co-hosts uh, and guests this week, and this show's editor is probably going to be Andrew again. Uh, this UC Architects episode was sponsored by Instant Technologies, experts in e-discovery and compliance for your Link IM archive. View a two-minute demo or start a free trial today at www.tryhrauditor.com or follow them on Twitter at Team Instant. This episode was also sponsored by Event Zero. The Dossier Link product family is an integrated suite of functionality designed specifically to enable organization-wide analytics for Microsoft Link environments, create actionable intelligence for the organization about the Link environment and its utilization. Check them out today at eventzero.com. And finally, before we go, as ever, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website today at www.theucarchitects.com or follow us on Twitter at The UC Architects. Be a friend and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash The UC Architects. Or, if you're business-like, join us on LinkedIn <laughs> in our UC group, The UC Architects. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, how are you listening to this show? You'll... <laughs> I don't know why I always feel silly saying this, but you'll find us in the iTunes store. So search for us. Uh, you know, I'm awfully business-like. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> yeah, so I'm trying to do the end of the show, John. Stop butting in. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, well, at least people... I say the same thing over, over and over again, so at least people know it's... Um, live as it were so yes if you haven't subscribed to our podcast already and are just listening by pressing play on the website guess what you can do you can subscribe in the itunes store on your iphone and if you've got one of those windows phones well i've got one a bit useless but uh, you've got the podcast app uh, that you can use or if you're using the 8.1 developer preview uh, you can use the rss feed in the podcast downloader and if so, you are using Windows Phone and don't aren't using the developer free one, preview eight, eight one, do it like now, like yeah, right you now. Should. It, it oh, yeah, you should. Put Paul Thorat's instructions on winsupersite.com yes. and and do it immediately because it's a thousand times better. <laughs> yeah, it does make the phone ever so slightly better, but still not as good as an iPhone. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's, my that's it for today, guys. See our website for links to everything on the show today. We'll see you back for the next episode with Pat hosting. Thanks for listening. Thank you.